Curricula and standards can provide guidance to educators, but I don't often see them being critiqued or discussed in the field. Do we even need them? If so, when and when not? The chapter titled The Centrality of Curriculum and the Function of Standards, The Curriculum is a Mind-Altering Device, explores this a little bit. This chapter is written by Elliot Eisner. In this episode, I'm gonna relate this to computer science education. My name is Jared O'Leary, and I have a background in music education and computer science education and a variety of teaching contexts all the way from kindergarten through doctoral students. This episode is going to kind of build off of some of the things I talked about last week in episode 174. You can find a direct link to it in the show notes at jaredoleary.com, where there are hundreds, if not thousands, of free computer science education resources, as well as over 1,300 hours of drumming content and a bunch of gaming content as well, because I'm a nerd. Now, the title of this chapter is a bit provocative, but here's a quote from page 148 that kind of elaborates a little bit more. Quote, when policymakers and educational theorists define a curriculum for a school or a classroom, they are also defining the forms of thinking that are likely to be promoted in the school. They are, in effect, laying out an agenda for the development of mind, end quote. And as we've talked about in other episodes, they are laying out an agenda for what they want people to value and understand and behave in society. How do we do that? Well, I mean, if we think about it from like a behavioral standpoint, if we reward certain behaviors and punish other behaviors or certain ways of knowing or being as opposed to others, that makes us so oh, different axiologies, ontologies, epistemologies, etc., are valued more than others, which inherently makes us so that some cultures are valued more than others. From an equity standpoint, this can be problematic, which is why many educators are talking about decolonization. So instead of having one way of thinking or doing or being in a classroom, we instead are focusing on having many, but people who were in the dominant culture that was promoted view this as an erasure. So Eisner goes on a little bit further to say that curriculum can come in many different forms. So as somebody who previously developed curriculum and uh, designed professional development full-time, I can say that, yeah, there's a lot of things that need to be discussed. I've talked about this in other episodes, but there are like different layers of curricula. So as a former curriculum developer, what I designed or intended for people to do is like one layer. The next one is what is actually taught. Then is what is actually like experienced by the students in the classroom and then how they actually embody that. So Elliot Eisner is gonna talk about some of these in this opening section of the chapter. Now, because I've talked about this more in other episodes that I will include in the show notes, I'm going to go through this section fairly quickly. But I wanna read a quote here from page 149. Quote, but there's always a distance between the intentions of curriculum designers and actual teaching practices. The curriculum in vivo, as contrasted with in vitro, consists in the actual activities employed in classrooms. No professional curriculum designer can know the details or specifics of individual classrooms or the needs of particular children, end quote. I totally agree with that. As a former curriculum developer, I can say that what I designed was intended to be customized for the students that the teacher was working with because I don't know what your classroom context is like. I don't know what students are interested in. I want you to be able to modify the lessons and the projects and the resources, et cetera, to align with the kids that you're working with. I can't just say, hey, this is gonna work for everybody. Even though I know many kids will enjoy the projects that I created as they were originally designed, However, they could be even better if they were customized a little bit, or maybe a lot of it, <laughs> for the students that you're working with. And this doesn't mean just for customization for, all right, I'm gonna make a project that matches the 30 kids that I work with, but instead saying, how can I make it so that we have 30 different projects that match the 30 unique individuals that I'm working with? So if you are a curriculum designer, I highly recommend thinking of this when you are creating your content, whether it's your resources, your lessons, or projects, whatever. Try and think of them as like a platform or a springboard for further ideas to be remixed and expanded upon, rather than like immutable lessons and projects that need to be 
left intact from how you originally designed it. Yeah, what you designed may have worked great for the kids that you were thinking of when you're creating it, but it might not work for, I don't know, 95% of the rest of the kids that are outside of that context. And that's okay, and that should be expected. But if we dive a little bit deeper into that idea, that doesn't just apply to curriculum designers, professional development designers, etc. This also applies to teachers. So if you are picking up any kind of a lesson plan, I strongly recommend that you customize it in some way to better match the kids that you're working with. Even if you feel like you are brand new to a domain like computer science and you don't have a lot of experience in it, try and find ways to customize it for the kids you're working with. And one way that you can easily do that is just ask kids how they might modify this. So if you're working on like a project in Scratch, great. Instead of having everybody recreate the exact same project, ask kids at the beginning to think of how they might take the model project, the example project idea, and change it so that it is more relevant to their own interests and needs and desires, etc. This approach kind of contrasts with what was introduced in the 60s, as Elliot Eisner discusses. So in the 60s, they talked about teacher-proof curricula. Quote, that is, designing curriculum materials that were so prescriptive and detailed that they could not fail to be effective, that illusory aspiration has long passed, and most people today recognize that professional direction is needed in teaching, just as it is in virtually every other professional field. If recipes for teaching were adequate, teacher education programs would be unnecessary, end quote. And that is from page 149 and 150. And that is such a good quote. If all we needed to do was design like the perfect lesson plan, then why would we even need to have teaching professionals? We could just hire paraprofessionals or random people from off the street, pay them minimum wage and just say, hey, make sure kids aren't throwing things and let the curriculum do the work for you. But that's not how teaching works. As somebody who has taught every grade kindergarten through doctoral student, I can say that I've always had to modify things because some kids are just not interested in a subject area and other kids might be really interested in it. Some kids are having a bad day because maybe they fractured their foot jumping off the swing set like I did when I was a kid. And other kids are experiencing racism in the schools and it's going unchecked and unnoticed by adults. There are so many factors that influence how kids come into the classroom and experience the de intended or designed learning, we need to take these into account. Just like we take into account prior experience. So we're supposed to be able to modify and adjust based on how experienced or less experienced students are, but everybody's gonna come in at a different level. Granted, the scale might be shorter for some groups or classes where it's like, okay, well, uh, the students' like ability level between 100, let's say it's like between 40 and 50, and they all come in within that range. But other times it might be between like 10 and 90. I've had students in the computer science classes that I've taught who have literally never seen or touched a computer before. So as an eighth grader that I'm thinking of, and then other students who go home and program on their weeknights and weekends, etc. That kind of a spread in a computer science class is something we have to be able to account for. And so modifying lessons is important. But not only do we need to think of what is being taught, but how we are teaching it. So one of the lessons that I learned when I was in Drumline, just from Glenn Crosby, who is a phenomenal educator, he was talking about how when he consulted a variety of drumlines across the country, that it wasn't just what you say, but how you say it and when you say it. So it's very important to not just be correct with the, the facts that you are giving when it comes to correcting like a mistake or showing how to fix something, but also figuring out what could you say in that moment that would help that student or maybe not say anything at all and let them kind of figure it out for themselves. So knowing the when and the how is extremely important to consider. So my computer lab was set up like an oval. So there were computers facing all of the walls around the edges, and then there were two tables that were facing towards the center in the middle. So when I walked around the room, 
I could walk around and assist students one-on-one. -on -one. So I'd be asking questions and kind of like guiding them. Many times when I would be asking them the questions, I would kind of like notice that they had like a bug with their program, whether it was uh, Scratch or Ruby or JavaScript or Swift or whatever language or platform they were working on. And I would kind of like use a guiding question to help them think through where they might be able to figure out a solution for this. And then I'd walk away. And I'd often walk back and kind of just kind of like look at their screen and see if they've made any progress and whatnot or see like what their body language is. Do they look like they're frustrated? Do they look like they're thinking really hard? Or do they look like they're bored, etc.? I would use all this information to figure out what do I need to do next or maybe not do. Maybe I just continue another circle around the room and assist other students. Maybe they don't actually need my assistance or maybe they do. One simple way to kind of figure that out is to just ask, hey, how's it going since I last checked in? This was a form of assessment, but there's also evaluation that is often occurring in different classrooms. So we need to think of how these all kind of like work together to kind of create an experience for students, how they are assessed, how they are evaluated, how you teach, what they are actually learning, etc., all kind of have an impact on how they experience this classroom. And I talked about that in the episode last week, number 174, which was titled Educational Aims, Objectives, and Other Aspirations. Now here's a quote from page 151, quote, Every time a teacher designs a curriculum activity, events are planned that have an impact on students' thought processes. Thus, how curriculum activities are designed, the models of cognition that are evoked, the forms of representation that are presented, or which students are given permission to use, all affect what students are likely to think about, end quote. Now, some people, when they hear that, they go, great, we should really define what exactly we value and what we want students to think about. As I've talked about in other episodes, this might be curriculum as social reconstruction, but another way of thinking of it is curriculum as cultural reproduction. I've talked about these more in episode 125, titled Images of Curriculum, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes at jaredoleary.com. Whatever image of curriculum you end up using. The curriculum or standards, objectives, etc., all kind of are used to help guide or provide some kind of direction or a framework for thinking through the educational experiences that students will engage in across their K-12 or even higher education tenure. But what that looks like differs for every educator or curriculum developer out there, or even administrator. Some people wanna know in advance, like in September, what will students be doing in February? Others look at it and go, well, I don't actually know what students are going to learn or how fast they're going to learn and what direction they want to go in. So we're gonna kind of unpack this a little bit more in the following pages. But to be honest, most of what I have seen in education is the first one. So most of them have like, here's the curriculum for the entire quarter or semester or year planned out. Like the very first district that I taught in, they literally handed us a series of notebooks that was every single lesson plan that you teach kindergarten all the way through sixth grade. This made it so that I technically didn't have to write any lesson plans because they're all written out, but I was supposed to rewrite them and add in transition sentences where I literally script out what I was gonna say word for word in each one of the lesson plans. As a new educator, this made it so that I had content to work with and I didn't have to stress out every single week trying to come up with lessons for each of the kids that I work with. While that might sound great for the educator, it doesn't mean that was a great experience for the students. There were so many sixth graders who were like, why do we need to sing this childish song? And I was like, I don't know, I didn't write the curriculum. This is just what we have to do. And then there were so many classes that I worked with that did not speak English and we were forcing them to sing a song that they did not understand in English. So on one hand, it made my life easier and not having to plan things. But on the other hand, it made the educational experience worse for the student. But with the other approach where things are much more flexible, quote, the teacher's task is to be sensitive to the flow of events and to the student's engagement in those events in order to make appropriate adjustments and, indeed, to invent activities that are appropriate for the students. 
This model suggests that curriculum activities grow out of or emerge from events that immediately precede them. The teacher is less concerned with arriving at a predetermined destination on time than with getting students engaged in activities that are emotionally satisfying and intellectually productive. Sequence grows out of the links that the teachers help forge between his or her more mature knowledge of a field of activity and the work that students engage in. To be able to make educational gold out of emerging activities in the classroom requires a high degree of artistry in teaching. Artistry in teaching is more likely to occur when the classroom provides a context for improvisation and where unpredictability rather than predictability of activities and consequences is acknowledged. When plans are tightly organized, when objectives are highly specified, where a timeline is prescriptive in its detail, routine is given a place of privilege. Efficiency and effectiveness are seen as more likely when the tracks are smooth and where all students are expected to move down those tracks toward a common goal. End quote. It's from page 152. And then this following quote is really going to resonate with all the podcast episodes that I've done on rhizomatic learning, which again, I'll include links to those in the show notes at jaredaleary.com. But quote, the more teachers open the door for the suggestions of students, the more opportunities they provide for genuine individualization. What such a curriculum promotes are individualized outcomes and individualized activities, end quote. And this is something that I talked about in a panel session at the Crossroads Summit like a couple of weeks ago. We were asked to kind of define what equity means to us or equitable computer science education. And what I talked about is individualized learning within a group context. And so I've unpacked this more in some of the other episodes on individualized learning or interest-driven learning, etc. So I'll include links to those in the show notes. But this kind of shows you some of the people who had a profound influence on the way that I thought of classroom experiences and lesson plans, etc. But here's an important quote that's from page 152 and 153. Quote, Many students find it difficult to cope with the opportunity to define their own goals. It takes practice to do so well and a willingness to accept such an opportunity as an appropriate part of one's own education. When birds have led their life in a cage, it is not difficult to understand that when the door is open, they might not have a desire to leave, end quote. That is such an important quote. I had so many students who'd come to my classroom and be like, wait, so we can learn whatever we want, we can create whatever we want on like several different programming languages and platforms? And be like, yes. They'd be like overwhelmed with the amount of choice. So I'd provide some like guiding questions, like some things to help prompt their understanding for thinking through what they might explore. Or I'd just sit down with them one-on-one and be like, all right, what are you interested in? All right, cool, you're interested in racing. How can we explore that in coding or whatever platform that we are working on? And kind of give them the tools and the ways of thinking to be able to do that. Because after years, if not decades of schooling practices that spoon feed projects and actions and like little activities for students to engage in without thinking of creating their own, they might need some support in how to do that. And here's a quote from page 153 that talks about that. Quote, even when students have a hand in framing their own purposes and informing their own curriculum activities, the teacher has a considerable role to play. Such an approach to curriculum makes greater demands on the teacher than one that is packaged by a curriculum production company. More is required if the teacher is to work more or less individually with students to enable them to think through and to plan what they are going to address in their art program. In addition, the teacher has a key role to play in calling the students' attention to qualities in their work they produce that need attention of one kind or another. A little bit further down, calling the students' attention to such matters addresses other mini curricular activities that invite students to think about the content of their work in new ways and to experiment with ways to strengthen what needs attention. Thus, curriculum and teaching merge within a dynamic context, end quote. Now, this is a really important quote and a really important 
point to consider. In computer science education, especially at the elementary level, there's often a focus on this teacher-proof curriculum. Hey, we've designed this platform that does all of the teaching, all of the assessment, everything you absolutely need. All you need to do is just like make sure kids are working. Why did curriculum developers design it this way? Because many elementary teachers, etc., do not have a background in computer science or programming. Well, likely well-intentioned, this creates a reliance on the curriculum itself. But because these platforms are designed in a way to take the teacher out of it, the teacher does not end up learning the content knowledge or learning the pedagogical knowledge to be able to teach computer science and to be able to move beyond that platform. It makes it so that you have to continue to subscribe or continue to revisit the website or continue to buy the next unit of instruction, etc. This is why when I previously designed professional development experiences, we approached it from the idea of rather than giving a person a fish, or in this case, a curriculum or lessons or projects, etc., we wanted to teach a person how to fish. So how you design the curriculum, how you design the professional development, and how you support the learning of teachers over time will have a profound impact on whether or not they actually become sustainable or not. Now, I have witnessed many districts move away from sustainability because of a variety of factors. The biggest one being not attending professional development, not giving time for teachers to be able to learn computer science concepts, practices, skills, understandings, etc., and the pedagogical knowledge. So yeah, it's great. You might be providing professional development, but if you don't provide the time for teachers to attend the PD or to continue their learning outside of PD and actually try and implement in their classroom in a meaningful and sustained and consistent way in terms of how frequently you do it, it's gonna have drastically different results. But going back to Eisner's quote, you need to have content knowledge to be able to know where students are going or what potential directions they might head in order to be able to guide them in this way. If you do not have that content knowledge and you are just like one lesson ahead, then you'll be like the high school programming teacher that I had who was literally like reading the chapter right before we were actually going to learn that particular concept or whatever and apply it in the projects that we were created. So we were handed a month's worth of projects. Most of the kids would finish it in a week or two, including myself. And then we'd literally just play video games on the computers because we had nothing else to do. The teacher could not guide us any further. And when we got stuck, the teacher did not know how to help us. All that to say, again, my background is in music education. When I first went into the classroom and started teaching computer science education, there were many times students came up to me and I was like, I don't know how to solve that bug or that problem or do that thing that you want to do. Let me go home and research it. I'll come back tomorrow. I'll talk to you about how I researched it, the processes that I took to come to some kind of a solution, and then we'll work through it together. This approach made it so that I was constantly learning, constantly doing new languages, figuring out new bugs to solve, new ways to create things, etc. So it's okay to not have the answer right away, but you need to be willing to learn that answer and again, not be reliant upon curriculum developers or providers to create and solve the problems for you. And again, that's easier said than done, and you need the support from administrators to be able to do that. Because I had the luxury of not having children at home that needed to be taken care of. I could spend my weeknights and weekends figuring these things out and learning how to do this, but most teachers do not have that luxury. They need time during the work hours to actually be able to learn this content and pedagogical knowledge. But I'll end my rant there. The next subsection of this particular chapter talks about integrated arts curricula. And so this is really relevant to the integration discussions that I had in previous episodes on integration of computer science education. There are many ways that you can integrate one domain into another. And I talk about them in other episodes that I link to at jaredoleary.com in the show notes for this episode. Now, Eisner talks about how there's a tendency, especially in elementary classes, to do integrated activities where you might try and merge the arts with social studies. So he talks about an example of teachers who have kids create like a Japanese style fish 
on plates that might be painted. Quote, such an activity produces Japanese-like images and is designed to give students the flavor of Japanese culture. Of course, it is very easy to convert art programs into handmaidens for learning the social studies or history without providing youngsters with occasions for developing artistic judgment or securing aesthetic forms of experience that make effective art education. It is possible to dilute art programs and to delude oneself that art is being taught when in fact there is little in the way of artistic activity going on, end quote. It's from page 154. So Eisner goes on to talk about how this form of integration is really just kind of taking artistic processes without actually creating artistic thinking or artistic ways of being into the activity. So you're using art in what might be described as like a subservient way to focus on the social studies without really focusing on the art. This is often done by social studies teachers who do not have a background in art and don't necessarily feel comfortable teaching those concepts and practices, which is why I've talked about how in other podcasts that you can work with or collaborate with other educators who are more experienced. So if you have a computer science person and you are going to integrate with a science activity, cool, partner with the science teacher, find ways to integrate in meaningful ways that are both meaningful for science education and computer science education. Don't just integrate computer science into the science class and skim the surface of basic vocabulary of computer science concepts. Actually get kids creating things with those concepts and understandings. Ideally things that solve problems that are relevant to the students that you work with. Here's a quote from page 154 and 155. Quote, as much time and attention and effort need to be devoted to enabling students to attend to their work aesthetically as is paid to the social studies or history material they are studying. A little bit further down, an integrated curriculum makes more, not fewer demands upon the teacher, end quote. That right there is such a key quote to really think about in computer science education. Far too often we integrate within other domains in order to save time. I understand general classroom teachers, especially at the elementary level, have a lot of things that they need to teach. They might be teaching several subject areas in a day and to now have mandatory standards for computer science education, it's just one more thing that they have to cram into a day. And it's not actually being tested upon. It's not a standardized test, which makes it so that many people are trying to integrate computer science into something that is tested, like science education or mathematics education or English and language arts. But this is often done in a way that dilutes computer science. It makes it easier for the teachers to teach the subject area without having to have an understanding of computer science and computer science education by instead focusing on vocabulary and very basic applications of understanding, like creative rudimentary program where everybody's doing the exact same thing. And so, yeah, it makes it so that people are technically doing computer science, but at what cost? Like I have a drum kit right behind me while I'm recording this, if you can't see it in the audio that you're listening to on. And if somebody told me that they have a integrated music and percussion program for their, I don't know, mathematics class, where students are going to do basic math problems by clapping their hands and like doing body percussion where they like stomp their feet and pat on their shoulders, etc., to be able to solve a math problem. While that technically is a form of percussion, it's one of thousands of potential instruments. It's just skimming the surface of understanding that one can have in the domain of percussion. Like I could talk to you for hours about the way that you hold your stick can have an impact on how the stick vibrates, which changes the way that the stick sounds and the instrument sounds, whichever one you're striking with it, etc. And that's just one of many different topics, let alone talking about the motion that you use that impacts that and how that relates to your anatomy in terms of like your fingers and your tendons and your muscles, etc. So while you might be clapping out some rhythms to be able to solve a math problem, I'd argue that is a subservient example of integration. 
And it's the same thing with computer science education. We focus on definitions and terms used with thinking or solving a problem, but honestly have little to do with CS outside of metaphors and ways of thinking. As another example, if you were to tell me that you were making a curriculum that taught kids to think like a native Japanese speaker, but they wouldn't be able to read or write Japanese as a result of engaging in this curriculum, I'd argue that students aren't learning Japanese, just ways of thinking. And it's the same thing for computational thinking in particular. Students are learning ways of thinking, but not necessarily computer science, depending on how and what is taught. But if you listen to episode 111 titled, A Revaluation of Computational Thinking in K-12 Education, colon, Moving Toward Computational Literacies, that episode kind of unpacks that some more. As well as in episode 123, which is titled, The Subservient, Co-Equal, Effective, and Social Integration Styles and Their Implications for Computer Science. Both those episodes and more on integration really kind of unpacked some of the problems with this approach to integrating computer science into other domains. Yes, it makes it easier for the teacher, but at the cost of actually learning computer science concepts and practices in meaningful ways for students. And again, often in a way that makes it so that the teacher is reliant upon curriculum developers and the lessons that they create. Rather than actually teaching a person to fish, they're just providing the fish. So Eisner goes on to problematize how things are very fragmented in terms of you engage in disciplines in ways that often are disconnected from others, as in like silos, and this can create some problems. And then instead of going with this kind of approach, and instead of going with a one-size-fits-all approach across an entire nation, we need to instead focus on more localized and individualized instruction and learning experiences. Now, some of you might be listening to this and going, okay, well, I wanna know where we're headed. And I understand that perspective, having previously taught that way. But if you check out the rhizomatic learning episodes, like episode number 150, which is titled Fostering Intersectional Identities with Rhizomatic Learning, and episode 75, Rhizomatic Learning with Katherine Bornhurst, John Stapleton, and Katie Henry, that can hopefully give you some ideas of how you might engage in this kind of a practice. But after spending some time talking about curricula and whatnot, Eisner goes on to say that the social social norms and expectations and cultures of schooling itself are also things that we need to think about in terms of having an impact on how students think, behave, etc. Here's a quote from page 158. Quote, a comprehensive understanding of what students learn in school requires considerably more than attention to curriculum and teaching practices. It also requires attention to the hidden messages, values, and ideas that are conveyed tacitly, if not explicitly, by fellow students and teachers in the classroom in which students spend so much time, end quote. So this is often referred to as like the hidden curriculum. And here are some questions from page 158, and I'm going to rephrase them from arts to computer science. Quote, what is the place of computer science in the curriculum or in the classroom's curriculum? How does it compare to importance with other fields of study? How much time is allocated for computer science in schools? When is it taught? Is it an elective or is it part of the core curriculum? Are grades in computer science taken into account by select universities in calculating grade point averages? Does the school publicly acknowledge, as it does in athletics and some of the sciences, students who are excellent in computer science? End quote. And again, like rephrasing some of it for computer science. These are really important questions to consider. Just because we have mandatory standards and whatnot, it does not mean that it is on the same hierarchy as other domains. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Should we have a hierarchy in general? I would argue no, but I know many people disagree with me on that. And I'm happy to chat with you about it on the podcast. There's a contact me button on my website if you wanna reach out. And then Eisner concludes this section talking about the null curriculum, which I've talked about before, but that is basically everything in a domain or discipline that is not taught. Even if you had an entire year where students are spending all of their time in class just working on computer science, you're still gonna leave stuff out. 
I mean, I have a PhD in music education, and there's still so much related to music and music education that I don't know or understand. That is the no curriculum from the experiences that I had, getting three degrees in a subject area. Now, the next subsection in here is on curriculum objectives. So starting on page 159, I'm actually going to not like talk about this one, just basically see the previous podcast episode number 174 titled Educational Aims, Objectives, and Other Aspirations. So instead, I'm going to go on to the next section titled Standards, and this is on page 161. So Eisner talks about how standards are often used to kind of define the expectations of students, but also what the teachers are going to teach. Standards are often associated with different reform movements, etc., and are often born out of like national curriculum frameworks, kind of like the K-12 CS framework, which I'll include a link to in the show notes. Here's a quote from page 162, quote, the belief is that establishing clear standards is the first and most important step in school improvement. In addition, it is assumed that the presence of one national set of standards for each subject will contribute to educational equity, since all students will be given about the same curricular fare and will be working toward the same aims. Furthermore, with the same aims, the same content, and the same standards, it will be possible to identify failing schools and unproductive teachers, and where necessary, make a change. The process is called accountability. Standards are also claimed to have other virtues. Using a uniform array of standards will enable teachers to talk to one another more productively. They will be able to learn from one another what works and to implement what works in their classroom. But most important, the public will know what to expect. And when standards are operationalized, supplemented by standardized tests, it will at last be possible for teachers to be held truly accountable for their students' performance, end quote. But here's some interesting questions to consider on page 163. Quote, why does a nation as diverse as ours need a common curriculum? Is there only one defensible conception of a good curriculum, a good school, or a good teacher? In a nation that boasts that one of its strengths is its diversity, are differences in the ways the subjects are conceptualized exempted from that diversity, end quote. A little bit further down, Eisner talks about how what teachers are supposed to teach through the standards are clearly defined for them, but how they are taught is supposed to be up to them. But from Eisner's perspective, this is the deprofessionalization of teachers and disenfranchises the communities they work with. Here's a quote from page 164, quote, one of these problems is the belief that it is possible to predict what a class will study and at what pace over the course of the school year. What we do know is that political, economic, and social events do affect schools, and that students' interests develop that provide teachers with especially teachable opportunities. Opportunities during which sticking to the lesson plan is the surest road to a pedagogical waterloo. What is needed in such circumstances is pedagogical improvisation in the service of meaningful teaching and learning. It is here, especially that teachers' professional judgment must come into play so that they can exploit those moments in the classroom." End quote. A little bit further down on page 164, quote, "...during the course of the work, students and teachers alike encounter the unexpected, students in images and qualities that they could not have foreseen, but that beckon in one direction rather than another." and teachers in surprises that unscripted students create. The joys of teaching are often found in these unpredictable events. Just what do such events have to do with standards? Only this. To the extent that standards dampen the desire to treat the content and aims of teaching flexibly, they impede artistry in teaching and therefore impede moments in learning that can be among the most meaningful for students. Planning and teaching profit from the flexibility, from attention to the changing colors of the context. Assumptions and concepts that seek predictability of routine and the security of conformity militate against it." End quote. Now, I've heard some educational scholars talk about how this focus on standards and focus on teachers teaching the exact same thing in the exact same way is a form of deprofessionalization. 
But if we go deeper into that kind of thinking, one of the things that is talked about is how this can lead to a removal of qualified educational professionals in the field. And I've seen this in some districts. Well, instead of having a certified educator teach computer science, let's just have a paraprofessional do it. They're much cheaper and we can just have the curriculum teach it for us. You don't really need to have an understanding of the content knowledge and pedagogical knowledge, etc. All we need is somebody in the classroom to make sure that students are engaged in the platform that we have paid for. Now, maybe a few years ago, I would have been like, ah, I don't know about that. That's not necessarily deprofessionalization. But again, I've seen districts do this. I've also lived in a state where a principal determines whether or not you are considered highly qualified. You no longer need a degree to be able to teach in Arizona. That's also the case in other states. Like I believe it's Florida where you just need to be a veteran and then you can start teaching. There are other programs that claim to be able to teach you in a couple of weeks or a couple of months to be able to teach. These programs are trying to address the teacher shortages that are going on, but to claim that in a couple of weeks or a couple of months that somebody is gonna have the same understanding as somebody who has earned a four-year degree in the subject area or has multiple years of experience, it just doesn't cut it. We have to acknowledge that these are all band-aids to a systemic problem. It's well known that teachers are overworked and underpaid and undervalued in society, but rather than try and alleviate that or remedy that, we are instead finding individuals with less experience, less understanding, who are willing to take a smaller paycheck, fill those open positions. And unfortunately, it's not up to people within the field to be able to fix that. It's up to politicians to do that. So the power is out of our hands, except in the power to vote and to make our voices be heard. So if you have teacher organizations or rallies or things that are trying to advocate for the field, find ways to support because we are headed in a direction that is continuing to deprofessionalize and devalue our field, in my opinion. A little bit further down on page 166, Eisner talks about how, quote, the idea that students will take the same paths and learn the same things at the same rate flies in the face of what is known about human development, end quote. And he talks about how this approach to uniformed standards and learning and everybody going the same way resembles an assembly line, which is very problematic. And again, listen to last week's episode to learn more about that. I'm gonna skip to a later section titled, Do Standards Have a Constructive Role to Play in Arts Education? It reads as follows. I'm gonna change it so that it's talking about computer science rather than arts. So this is from page 173, quote, where does this leave us with respects to standards in computer science education? Does the analysis I've provided mean that having well-stated aims or objectives is useless? Am I saying that reflection on what one wants to accomplish as a teacher or curriculum developer is irrelevant to better practice? Am I advocating a policy for computer science education that has no rudder? I hope I am not interpreted that way. I believe standards can make a contribution to computer science education if they do the following. If they represent in a meaningful and non-rigid way the values we embrace and the general goals we seek to attain. If they provide those who plan curricula with an opportunity to discuss and debate what is considered important to teach and learn. And if they suggest criteria that can be used to make judgments about our effectiveness. Standards should be viewed as aids, as heuristics for debate and for planning. They should not be regarded as contracts or prescriptions that override local judgments. My argument is an argument not for mindlessness, but for a recognition of the virtues of diversity and of the need for curriculum planners and teachers to be sensitive to local circumstances and individual efforts. The idea of using the process of formulating standards as a heuristic is, to me, especially appealing. It provides a focus for discussion, deliberation, debate, analysis, and ultimately clarification regarding the aims one wants to achieve in a classroom, a school, or even a school district. 
It provides a practical hub around which conversations can take place among teachers and others working in a school or school district, end quote. So again, if you listen to the episode 150, Fostering Intersectional Identities Through Rhizomatic Learning, John Stapleton and I talk about how you can use standards as landmarks that you can head toward, that you can discuss, that you can even move away from. They can all be viewed as optional, but it really depends on how you kind of design and think through education and educational experiences. So I highly recommend checking that episode out if you want to learn more about that. This chapter concludes with the discussion on what the public needs to understand. One of the suggestions that Eisner gives is that instead of doing like an art walk of artwork, you could have an educationally interpretive exhibition of their artwork. So students will actually share what they learned and how they created things. I did this in one of the like parent teacher nights where parents would come into their classroom and when the students were with them, I would encourage them to show the projects that they created and talk about the things that they've learned while doing that. I think this is a really good way to be able to communicate the things that students are learning within a particular domain. In this case, it might be computer science education or something else. So I'm gonna read for you the closing from Eisner's chapter. This is on page 177. Quote, I would urge teachers to use standards as an opportunity for discussion, as considerations for curriculum development, but not as prescriptions for processes or even for goals. What goals or aims are appropriate for students is not best defined by policymakers who are not in contact with the students' schools as intended to serve. Localism in this context is far preferable. That is the route I would urge teachers to take. With it, computer science education, like the rest of education, can be a kind of rainbow coalition of teachers designing programs and indeed adopting programs when they suit the educational needs of the students they teach." End quote. And again, I modified that to say computer science education rather than arts education. So this leads into some of my lingering questions and thoughts that I have when I do these unpacking scholarship episodes. So one of them is, while an individualized approach to education does put more responsibility on teachers, I'd argue we could take away a lot of the mundane responsibilities we have to do in order to focus our time and energy on teaching. So like how many times did you have like a duty before, during, or after school? I had multiple of those. Depending on the district, some had more than others. One of the responsibilities that I had was just like standing in the lunchroom and making sure that kids weren't throwing their food. Another was like standing at the bus line, making sure that kids got on the right bus, things like that. These are all things that you could have a minimum wage employee work on. But instead, as a certified educator, I was doing these things that we could have volunteers or staff members who are getting minimum wage to work on. The reason why I bring this up is because this is not to brag or anything like this, but I created for a previous employer content that received several million dollars worth of funding. So as a content creator, I have very high value, but rather than spending time working on content like that, or like trying to improve as a teacher or to design better educational experiences for the kids that I was working with, I was instead spending a lot of my time throughout the day working on those things that you could have a staff member do who is receiving minimum wage. I understand why we are treating everybody the same way, but to ignore the expertise or even the pay scale of the teachers that are in schools, again, deprofessionalizes the teachers that are working there. And that's just in my opinion. As another example, how many endless meetings have you had that could have been an email? Or mandatory PD sessions where you might actually be an expert on but you were required to attend. Why can't we treat teachers as professionals? And like, even with a PD example, why not make it so that all the PD sessions are optional and there's a variety of topics that you can pick from? Why treat all the teachers as the same, as if they're incompetent on a topic 
a district PD person may have read a single book on. Like I've mentioned previously, I had to attend a first year teaching PD that went the entire year. And this was after I finished my residency for a PhD in music education and had already taught for several years in the classroom. But because this was a new district that I was moving to, I was asked to attend this thing year round. But fortunately, I was teaching a college class at that time. So I only had to attend like the first and last session of that year because I had a prior conflict. But to put somebody like myself who has a lot of experience in education and to put them in the same room and treat them the exact same way as somebody who is fresh out of their undergraduate degree and to say that we are on the same level, again, deprofessionalizes things. That for me is one of like the lingering thoughts that I have about this is like the amount of deprofessionalization that has been going on and the amount of time that is wasted for educators when they could be spent learning content knowledge, learning pedagogical knowledge, and just like learning how to better improve the educational experiences of the kids that work with. But instead, they are forced to participate in mindless activities or attend PD sessions that they might not need to attend. Another like broader takeaway for me is I might have paid more attention in other subject areas if I could have explored it in ways that were actually meaningful to me. And I've talked about this in other episodes. I left computer science before I ever really got started because my teacher could not push me. He was unable to help me to move beyond where we were in the class. I really wanted to learn a lot, but I was not being challenged. The reason why I jumped back into computer science is because one of the very last classes that I took for my doctorate, I audited a course that was just called Electronic Music. And in it, we actually were creating music apps through a graphical programming language. And the professor encouraged us to create a wide variety of apps that were individually meaningful to each of the students who were participating in this class. The content itself was not the issue. I really enjoyed the content in both classes, but how it was taught and the expertise of the person teaching it had a profoundly positive or negative impact on the exact same content area. So again, we need to really focus on developing the content and pedagogical knowledge of teachers within the field in order to make it so that they can teach in ways that are meaningful. We can't just rely on curriculum developers and PD providers to do that for us. And we can't just integrate in ways that are not meaningful. Again, if you're just skimming on the surface, you're not going to develop the expertise as an educator and students aren't going to develop the expertise as a student. Every subject area is beautiful in its own way. The people who really understand that often are the ones who end up teaching that particular subject area. However, how we teach that subject can have a profoundly positive or negative impact on whether or not people will find that beauty or not. But just because everything can be beautiful, it does not mean that everyone needs to explore or understand that beauty. We have to accept that even if we try to cover everything, there will always be a null curriculum. So why do we pretend like we have to make sure everyone walks out with the same incomplete understanding? Which leads me to, again, ask, as I have in many episodes, why do we even need to have mandatory classes in general. But I won't rant about that on this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider sharing it with somebody else or leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Stay tuned next week for another episode. Until then, I hope you're all staying safe and are having a wonderful week.